Well, I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. While you're turning there, I do want to encourage you to come back this evening. We'll have our guest preacher, Brian Suey. He has come and preached, so I um, encourage you to come and, and guiding us, leading us towards uh, some encouraging words about the Reformation, sort of guiding us, leading us towards turn for that. We come to a, the last section here of the narrative of the judges. Um, moving forward, chapter 17 through the end of the book is really just two lengthier conclusions to the book of Judges. So this is the last chapter in the narrative pertaining to Samson. And I'm going to try to be somewhat discreet as I preach this text, uh, but we will need to address a topic that was a significant problem for Samson. And it's a significant problem for many more people today. So I think it's absolutely appropriate and relevant to address it. Um, in his book, Hide or Seek, John Freeman writes, at times I'm still amazed at the pushback I get from men who are reluctant to install a filter or accountability software on their computer. For men, youth, and even women who struggle with pornography and lust, that laptop, tablet, or cell phone is like carrying around an adult bookstore all day long. You have to make a decision sometimes several times a day as to whether to go into that store or not. Sometimes it's all too much for one person to handle alone. I do think this problem affects all of us to one degree or another. It has an impact on just about every relationship in your life. And I think it needs to be considered here um, very carefully. Chapters 14 and 15, they centered around Samson's interest in a Philistine woman from Timnah. And we talked about how that was a really forbidden for him to pursue, but God did use that as an occasion against the Philistines. Samson's interest in Philistine women continues in this chapter. In fact, in two more instances, we'll see him interacting with Philistine women. And ultimately, it does lead to his death. The bulk of this chapter records in painful detail the humiliating depths to which Samson was willing to sink in order to satisfy his lust. And of course, as we read through it, I think we see our own weaknesses on display. Whether your temptation is the same as Samson's or some other vice, we can all learn something from Samson's failure. But this chapter provides more than moral principles. If that were all this was, it would be wholly inadequate. What makes this chapter remarkable is that Samson's moral compromise is met by the Lord's covenant patience. That the Lord deals patiently with Samson and he continues to use him to fulfill his covenant purposes all the way to his death. In fact, in his death, primarily, he is used. So the Lord patiently works through sinful servants to bring deliverance to his chosen people. And he's continuing to do so. 
So before we read this chapter, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this important narrative. In the entire book of Judges, it seems to have the, the greatest um, parallels to Christ, and yet it comes in a very surprising situation. Lord, help us to, um, to be attentive. Help us to listen for what we can learn ourselves, how we can apply the principles that we learn. Lord, these, these moral principles are important, and yet we also need to be empowered by the gospel. We need to understand, fully apprehend the mercy of God in Christ that's held out to us in this passage. So Lord, do a work softening our, our eyes and giving us ears to hear, softening our hearts to respond to this truth with both repentance having a sense of conviction, a true sense of our sin, but also remind us of the comforting gospel. And may you be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Judges chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had been lying in ambush in an inner chamber. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, until, you, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it 
tight with the pen. Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pen and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have, told, you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her, at his, he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of, out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. 
Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, from the beginning, we see this trip to Gaza. Samson went to Gaza, and if you're following along in your notes, this section is labeled sleepless in Gaza. Samson's sleepless in Gaza. Verse 1, he went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. There's really no need to explain the details of that. It is exactly what it sounds like. He visits a prostitute. This is the common secular variety. There would have been two words in Hebrew for prostitute, one being the cultic kind, others being um, the secular variety. And this was a, a typical common secular prostitute that he visited. Uh, this is the second of three Philistine women who represent Samson's weakness. And that's followed by this attempt at an ambush. The Gazites find out that he's come. And, it, and that in itself, we know that he'll, he'll escape, but it provides this illustration of the dangers that surround us as we become comfortable in our sin. I picture that. He's, he's with a prostitute in her home and, or, or wherever they are, and they're being surrounded. The men of Gaza discover where, where he is, and they, they surround every door. I, they're guarding, but apparently they fall asleep because at some point in the night, at midnight, or, or in the middle of the night, he, he leaves. He's unable to sleep, probably racked with guilt, but we don't know that for sure. But he leaves in the middle of the night, and we learn that he moves the doors of the gate. Now, as you, he, he pulls them up, uh, the gate of the city and the two posts, pulls them up bar and all, all and puts them on his shoulder. So this is a massive door, a gate. And you don't really get a picture of how far he's dragging this, but a hill in front of Hebron would have been upwards of 40 miles away. He's dragging this heavy gate uphill for 40 miles. So this is not a, a short distance. It's not a short journey that he's going on. And no one can deny that this is itself an impressive show of strength. But you might be wondering if it was even necessary. Why did he do this? What is this about? Well, Hebron was located near the center of Judah. And so I do believe that he was declaring his triumph. Once again, another victory over the Philistines in, in placing this right at the center of, of the territory that belonged to Judah. He's, he's, honor, he's trying to honor the Lord in this and testify to the people that God is using him. So despite Samson's fall, the fact that God gives him the strength to do this shows that God is ensuring that his name will be vindicated against the Philistines. Samson's strength remains purely by the grace of God. And he's not deserving of this strength. God reveals his patience and his long-suffering with his servant throughout this narrative. And so, un unfortunately, it's oftentimes the most gifted individuals who seem to face the greatest temptations. And Samson is not alone in his struggle with sexual sin. And Jesus speaks of the sin of adultery, Uh, the guilt of the sin of adultery being upon all who look at a woman with lust. Read that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. 
So to our knowledge, Samson never seeks help. He never looks for accountability in this struggle. We don't have that exemplified, at least uh, articulated in, in the narrative. He doesn't cry out for deliverance from his sin. We have two occasions where he's crying out to the Lord, but in neither of those occasions does he mention his own sin. Uh, he, he doesn't seek the Lord's strength. He doesn't seek the Lord's wisdom in fighting his sin. And so in other words, it, it's not much of a struggle. He appears to just be giving in. He's not fighting sin. And so I think the first step, the first thing we want to take away from this is that we, may that never be true of us, that we would become comfortable with our sin, almost indifferent towards it. Let us be vigilant in seeking purity in thought, in word, and in deed. In Samson's life, unfortunately, after enjoying the Lord's kindness, he finds himself in the middle of temptation once again, now in the valley of Sorek. He's loveless in Sorek. So sleepless in Gaza, loveless in Sorek. And this is where we come to the narrative involving Delilah. Samson has a lust for love. And ultimately, that love is what he's after at verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. He, he loves her but she doesn't love him. And that's pretty evident as you work through it. What he's after, why he's loving her, why he's struggling in this way is because he wants to be loved. And yet she has a lust for silver. She has a problem with greed. So Samson loves Delilah and the Philistines see this as another opportunity against him. They approach Delilah with an offer that she couldn't refuse. They bribe her with 1,100 pieces of silver um, per elder. Now, they're, they're wanting to know what is, Samson, what is Samson's kryptonite? What is the weakness that he has? What is his problem? Right, what, how can we bind him? And if, we're, if the scholars are right, there's probably, um, these are probably the rulers of the Philistine Pentapolis which would have been the five cities of, Philistine, of the Philistines. So in other words, they're offering her 5,500 pieces of silver. Now, if you go back to chapter 8, verse 26, we considered Gideon and the spoils of his war um, against the Midianites. And they had defeated and conquered uh, the Midianites, and then they wanted to, to set up Gideon as their ruler. And he said, I will not rule over you, but I do want to make a request. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. And they take all of their spoil, their earrings, the, their golden earrings, and they gather them up and they give them to, um, to Gideon. And it totals 1,700 shekels of gold. So they're offering one, their, their, all of their spoils total 1,700 shekels of gold. Now, gold versus silver. I'm not sure what the ratio of value would have been at this time, but offering Delilah 5,500 pieces of silver is obviously a significant amount of money. In fact, some one commentator um, applies that into, you know, with an, uh, accounting for inflation today, 
and estimates that it would have been about $21 million that they're offering her. So this was an enticing offer. So Samson fell for a gold digger. And his, his wife was led by fear. Delilah was led by greed. He was looking for love in all the wrong places. Right? Benjamin Franklin said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. I think that's true. If you start, you have to keep your eyes wide open. Explore every possible uh, vice in a person's life. Explore every possible dangerous characteristic in that person's life. Keep your eyes wide open before marriage. And then afterwards, you got to keep them half shut. You got to start squinting through marriage, making sure that you're willing to overlook sins against you. So we can learn something even from, from this beginning of their relationship. In the next section, verses four or verses six through fourteen, there's this escalation in Delilah's persistence and Samson's diminishing restraint. Now I'm just going to be brief here, and you can read over it on your own again. But, but you first of all have the instruction, uh, or she Delilah asks Samson about his source of strength and how he might be bound. She essentially is repeating what the Philistine rulers had told her almost verbatim. And they supply the bowstrings for her when he responds that it's seven fresh bowstrings. That's the, the trick, right? If you can just bind me with seven bowstrings, I'll lose all power. So they supply the bowstrings and she does the binding, but Samson snaps the bonds and avoids an ambush. In the next section, it's as if they don't know what happened in the previous chapter because he had already bo- broken through new ropes. Um, Delilah simplifies her request. She simply wants to know, how can, how can I bind you? Stop mocking me, Samson. Tell me how, how you could be bound. Seems so, it seems not very deceiving <laughs> of an approach, right? It seems like he should have been able to see through that, um, that disguise. But she, she condemns him for mocking her and then wants to know how he, how she can bind him. And so he tells her, it's new ropes, that's the trick. She binds him with new ropes. He snaps them just like the last time. And then this third occasion starts to get a little closer to the truth. Delilah again plays it simple. She says, asked to know how he can be bound. And Samson draws attention to his hair. He says, if you weave and fasten it with a pin, that he would be powerless. So once again, Delilah follows all of his instructions and Samson escapes. And before we move to the next one, let's address the obvious application at this point. Never wear a man bun. That's the application here. Man buns not only make you look weak, they are weakening. No, I'm kidding. Total joke. Lastly, Delilah's heartless torment and Samson's exhausted forfeit. He finally gives up. Delilah questions Samson's love. Now she gets to the heart of what he's after. Right? He loved her. Interestingly enough, he loved her. And she says, why do you say you love me? And then mock me. Why do you continue uh, to, to treat me like this? 
your heart is not with me. You've mocked me these three times. You've not told me where your great strength lies. And in fact, the language there of pressing him, she presses him, is the exact same thing that his wife from Timnah did when he gave in to her and told her the riddle. So this seems to be um, difficult for him to withstand. It did the trick, and, and her free, three previous attempts all mention her desire to bind him. She, she doesn't say that this time. She just, she just talks about his lack of love and his, his mocking her. So love, obviously, and the reader would see this is the last thing on her mind, and yet it's the only thing on his mind, which is why it's so effective. He reveals that his hair had never been shaved because he had been a Nazarite from birth. I like what Delroth Davis says at this point. He says, Samson said razor and Delilah saw silver. And it's hard to understand how he could be so blind to her intentions. Why doesn't he, he see what we clearly perceive as we're reading the chapter? Well, like you've probably experienced in your life, Sin is deceiving. It follows no single strategy. It thrives off surprise. And I think that's why accountability is so important. Surrounding ourselves with people who we can be vulnerable with, who we can be honest about our weaknesses, is crucial to our growth in Christ. On the other hand, it's quite possible that Samson had grown in his suspicious, uh, grown suspicious of, of Delilah's intentions because he does seem to just simply give in here. Like he's simply tired of fighting the lust. Like he's throwing in the towel. And so without a strategy to fight sin, he was absolutely defenseless against its attack, which came at random times from various quarters. Now, maybe he figured out, or maybe he figured that he'd give in and, and the consequences wouldn't be all that severe, right? After all, God had promised to begin deliverance through him. So maybe he took that as a, a sense that he was indestructible, right? that he was unbreakable. And so he'd become presumptuous of God's grace. And today, it might sound something like this. I like to sin, God likes to forgive, so we make a great team. That's presumption. Justifying your sin because God is a forgiving God. Using his character as a means of indulging in sin. May that never be. Delilah's cruelty is also very evident here. All right, she informs the Philistines immediately. They promptly brought her payment. And she had his head shaved while he's asleep on her lap. And then it would appear just for fun, she begins to torment him. And there was no offer of payment, additional payment for that. She simply does it out of the cruelty of her heart. She begins to torment Samson, whose strength had left him. And then we get to verse 20, which is possibly the saddest verse in all of Judges. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free, but he did not know 
that the Lord had left him. First of all, if Samson was unaware of the Spirit's departure, it would imply that he at least knew of his presence prior to this. Right, so all of the things that have taken place prior to this, Samson was aware of, of this, the indwelling Spirit. We also need to remember the Lord's patience with Samson throughout all of these chapters. God had graciously preserved Samson's strength up to this point. And he will again restore that strength. But only after reminding him of his utter dependence upon the Spirit. And so chapter 15 emphasized Samson's strength and his dependence upon the Spirit. We even see him being, um, receiving recovery, revival um, by the grace of the Lord. And, and yet here, we see him being abandoned. Instead of being sustained by the Lord, now he's abandoned by the Lord. He's weak and alone. And we need to acknowledge that the Lord does discipline those he loves. The harshest punishment that Samson received in all of this, these, these chapters was necessary in bringing him to repentance and bringing him back to a usefulness once again. And you've heard the name Ichabod, the phrase, that, or it's, it means the glory has departed. You read that in 1 Samuel 4.21. But that can be written over denominations. It can be written over churches. It can be written over the lives of individuals. So let our prayer be like David's after he'd fallen into great sin. We sang earlier, Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. It should be our greatest fear when we're deep in sin like that. The tragic story of Samson and Delilah, however, sets up an amazing conclusion. Right, that he's victorious in death, verses 21 through 31. So the details of the chapter recount Samson's capture, his humiliation, and death. Verses 21 and 22, the Philistines were easily able to seize the weakened Samson to ensure, and, to, and to ensure that he remained helpless, they gouge out his eyes, and they, they place him in prison in Gaza, bind him in bronze shackles, where he spends his time grinding at the mill. However, we also have a, a hopeful verse 22. We learn that his hair was growing again. Not that his hair was, was where his strength came from, but it's an indication of hope that there's, there's one final act of deliverance through Samson that's about to take place, that the Lord is once again being gracious to him. And so you see this, verses, verses 23 through 25 recount the humiliation of Samson. With him in chains, the Philistines, they gather together for worship of Dagon. And scripture depicts Dagon as a, a grain deity, uh, which makes Samson's flaming fox trick in the previous chapter all that more much more devastating because he wasn't just destroying all of their grain crops, but he was... He was essentially showing their God to be powerless. So now with them having conquered Samson, they're ready to rejoice once again in their God. They're ready to give praise to Dagon. And it should, these verses ought to rise up 
in us an angry protest against their blasphemous praise. Again, as Del Ralph Davis says, after all, we know that, that all of this is theological and liturgical baloney. We know it was the absence of Yahweh, not the power of Dagon, that accounts for Samson's shame. And so they aren't merely mocking Samson, they're mocking God here. But typically, how do we respond to blasphemy? I think we simply shrug oftentimes. We may be slightly disappointed. And so again, we have this opportunity to, to, to not remain indifferent to this kind of thing. In all of their frenzied excitement, they decide to bring out Samson to entertain them. It says they become merry, probably drunk. Maybe they're asking him to do some amazing feats of strength to which he doesn't have the strength to do anymore, so it just leads to more mockery. And so they think they can simply carry on like this throughout the night. And then Samson requests to lean against the pillars, and it builds the reader's anticipation. And then there's this little note about the number of Philistines that were on the roof, 3,000 men and women, including all of the lords. And so Samson makes this final prayer for the Lord to remember him, to strengthen him, and then to allow vengeance. And it's a bit of a, a sloppy prayer. Right? It seems like a mixture of intentions. And I think it is. Right, Samson knew that he was not deserving of strength, and so he calls upon the Lord to remember him. He knew it was completely up to the Lord to provide that strength. And so his request for the Lord to remember him is a legitimate nod to God's promise to bring deliverance to Israel through Samson. Right? He's reminding God of his covenant promise. However, he follows that up with a request for receiving vengeance for the Philistines taking his eyes. And it does seem to be self-serving. There's a, a number of better things he could have prayed at this point. But can you appreciate what God does here? That Samson's prayer is good, but it's filled with impure motives. Much like our best works. All of us. And our best works, our good works, are filled with impure motives. And so despite Samson's desire for personal vengeance, it's Yahweh who gets vengeance upon an idolatrous people. Right, Dagon is shown to be powerless once again as he's defeated. The capture and torture of one of the Lord's servants leads to the death of 3,000 Philistines. And just as in chapter 15, verse 18, the climax of this chapter came when Samson cried out to Yahweh. And although Samson is morally compromised, Yahweh hears his prayers and he grants his request. It's a reminder to us that God is never beyond your reach. Right? That you can cry out to him in repentance. God knows your heart even when you don't know exactly what to say, even when your prayers are sloppy. 
God can open your eyes through the power of the gospel, even though you don't have the strength to lift up your head. And so call upon the name of the Lord for your deliverance, and you will be saved. That's the promise from Romans 10. Samson's final act was to lean his weight against the two middle pillars, one in each hand. He cries out to the Lord, let me die with the Philistines, and the Lord grants his request. And it accomplishes a partial judgment upon Israel's oppressors. Judges chapter 13, verse 5, it's the fulfillment of that. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This was simply the beginning of judgment against the Philistines. And so the Lord patiently works through sinful servants to bring deliverance to his chosen people. And Barry Webb says this, the victory is unquestionably Yahweh's, even if it is only achieved through the suffering of his servant. And we marvel at God's use of Samson as a sinful servant who brought a partial and temporary deliverance for a relatively small portion of God's people. And yet it pales, does it not, in comparison to our true judge, Jesus Christ, who brought complete and everlasting deliverance for all who place their faith in him. Samson destroyed Dagon's temple in his death, but Christ defeats every false god in his crucifixion. Samson's death was the end of his reign, but Jesus' death established his reign forever. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So his reign was only beginning, right? And it carries on throughout eternity. Both Samson and Jesus willingly gave their lives, but only Jesus had victory over the grave. Let me conclude with Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So let us respond singing praise to the one whose death was capable of delivering us from the one who has the power of death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.